The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. That struck me back then as this is wrong. We're wasting huge amounts of talent in this country where we have no one to waste. And it was at that point uh, I said, if I'm fortunate enough in my life, I'd like to focus my energy to try to close uh, this opportunity divide. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Welcome to This Is Working podcast, where my colleague Nina Melendez and I discuss a conversation I had with a leader on my LinkedIn video series, This Is Working. Nina and I take that conversation, we dissect it, and extract our own top takeaways for you, the listener. So Nina, I'm super excited about this one today. Tell us a little bit about who we are talking about. Yeah, we're talking about your conversation with Gerald Shartavian, the founder and CEO of Europe. So just for those who don't know, Europe is a tuition-free job training program. And Gerald was inspired to launch it after his experience in the Big Brother program. He was paired with a kid from a neighborhood, as he quotes it, uh, one of the most heavily photographed crime scenes in New York City. And this kid had potential and drive, but his circumstances really just pointed to having a lot of barriers to success. And so the aim of Europe is to sort of close those opportunity gaps and take bright kids from anywhere and any background and give them a shot at success. Yeah, and this is really, it's working incredibly well. So Europe's one of the fastest growing nonprofits in the nation. And I think Gerald, and we talk a little bit about this in the interview, he really takes his background in the for-profit world and applies it to nonprofits. So he began his career on Wall Street as a executive with Chemical Bank. He received his MBA with honors from Harvard Business School and in 2014 received the Distinguished Alumni Award. He's written a ton of articles about mentorship and education. He has a book about programs, which is aptly called Year Up. And he is incredibly thoughtful, not only about what's needed in this country, what's needed for these kids, but how companies can benefit from it. So he thinks about the full marketplace. And I think that has helped him really grow year up. Have you ever done any kind of mentorship program or Big Brother program? Here and there. But one of the most impactful things that I've done in this regard was a year up one-off. Hmm. We had, we had a uh, off-site and we had these year-up kids, they call them scholars, come in and do these round-robin mentorship sessions with everyone at the off-site. So basically, you were at a table, you were paired up with one of the scholars, and they came with a problem, and you were asked to try to help them think through it. And it was totally eye-opening for me for a couple reasons. One is the problems that they were bringing were not the kind of problems that I'm used to hearing at work. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like, well, how do I think about making sure that I'm influencing this one particular executive mm -hmm. or getting my program across? It was, how do I, um, you know, I've got so many people in my family right now trying to clamor for my paycheck. Everyone in the family is like asking for something. How do mm -hmm. I deal with that? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know. That's not even, I'm not sure how to respond to that. Hmm. What would you say was the biggest takeaway from that experience? Uh, one is that I needed to learn how to be a much better mentor. I really was like, ah, oh, this is easy. I do this all the time at work. I'll be great. And I was not great. Huh. Uh, but two was afterwards, they, uh, year up, someone, a representative from year up talked to us. And this is years ago now. They said, that was great. And all of these kids came away with something from these conversations that they had with you. And I think that my peers and I all felt the same as like we were sort of struggling 
on what to talk about or how to talk. But the year up representative was saying for these kids, for these scholars, just being heard was important. And to just be around people like you and to realize that you're not on some pedestal, that you were just humans, that they can have these conversations is really important. Learning how to talk, learning how to get feedback, all of that is important to being able to be successful in a professional environment. And so no matter what kind of advice we were giving, that wasn't necessarily the most important part. It was the interaction. Did it help you at all in future conversations you had with employees? Did it help you at all see that even though they're not asking you about their family, that this employee might have a background like that? Well, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in this episode. But one of the big takeaways for me was this idea of belonging. And Mm -hmm. Gerald talks about this, and we're going to really dive into it. And just feeling like you belong and making sure that people feel like they belong is essential. And honestly, until we had this conversation, I'd forgotten about that. And so did I have a takeaway from that experience? Not as big of a one as I should have had. But this latest interview uh, sort of sparked something in me that made me realize that I had been I'd left this part out of how I should be mentoring people. Yeah, this interview is great. And Gerald, you know, for, for a guy with an MBA from Harvard, actually pushes back against conventional credentials and really advocates for a more skilled-based approach to hiring. Let's listen to how he got to that conclusion. Prior to Europe, I ran a technology company. And uh, we had hired lots of folks from all different walks of life. And there was one gentleman, uh, his name was Alex. And Alex had uh, a high school education. Uh, He didn't have the college degrees that some of the other folks in our organization had. Alex was our best technical worker, right? He was brilliant. He was hardworking. He was smart. And I remember thinking back then, um, I may be missing a lot of other people who look like Alex. It was when I really saw up front how this opportunity divide was impacting smart, ambitious, hardworking individuals. Then I realized that there are many people out there that if we look at their competencies versus just their credentials, their professionalism, not just their pedigree, we're actually going to come to different conclusions about who's talented in this country and where talent resides in this country. When I started Europe, Dan, people literally looked at me askance when I said, here's what we're doing. We're preparing young adults who happen to have come from backgrounds that had higher barriers to success. Um, And we're going to place them into career jobs. No one was doing that back in 2000. And people, sadly, saw our population and thought food service, retail, um, or security were your options. And I was saying, no, our young adults can be in your IT department. If you look at today, where we are, hundreds of companies probably half of the Fortune 100 have really started to look hard at, do we really need those four-year degrees? How are they helping us? Where can we relax that? Now, so you have to remember that when you say you want a four-year degree as a condition to apply for a job, you exclude 83% of Latinos and 75% of African-Americans. So that blunt sorting mechanism called a four-year degree actually excludes a huge percentage of individuals in this country. And then you have to also address the fact that I can predict whether you're gonna go to college more by your bank balance than your SAT score. Now we have a real problem, right? We're sorting individuals based on something that is attainable more by your 
economic station than your intelligence, right? So that can't have a good outcome. I mean, those stats are really staggering. 83% of Latinos, 75% of African-Americans being excluded from the hiring pool if you are insisting on a degree. That is, uh, it's just incredible to think how many people don't even have access to these jobs. Mm -hmm. One of the surprises to me in Gerald's sort of founding story, though, was that I feel like if I were in Gerald's shoes, I would have said, this is terrible. This is a travesty. We've got to change this. And we've got to change it by getting more kids into college. Mm -hmm. That feels like the easier path. There's already a path to colleges have this figured out. They understand how to go from diploma to job. So why not just put more people onto that path? What Gerald chose was the hardest possible way to solve this problem, but to convince companies that they should stop thinking about the degree as the requirement to get somebody in a door. You know, the thing about the college approach that we forget about is it's not just about getting into college. It's about staying in college. And this is the issue that a lot of folks from low-income families have because they can get into college, but once they're there, they're dealing with circumstances that other people who can stay the full four years aren't. Many of them have to drop out because they have to take care of a parent. They have to take care of family members. They run out of money. Malcolm Gladwell did this whole series on the U.S. World Report college rankings. And part of the flaw he found in that is that when you had these Ivy League schools talking about graduation rate being part of their ranking at the top, it's unfair because a lot of the, for example, historically black colleges and universities or other schools, they have a higher dropout rate, not because they aren't good universities, but it's because they have lower income folks who join and just can't finish the four years. Yeah, that revisionist history series was phenomenal. I thought Malcolm did a great job of explaining why uh, these historically black colleges and universities are penalized because they are supporting a, a, a group that is not always going to make it through. As soon as you have to support your family, you got to get a job. You have to leave school. I still think that a lot of philanthropists, do-gooders think about how do I get somebody into college without exactly your point of helping them then stay in college. What Gerald is pushing is a sort of a revolution in thinking, is saying, why even bother going through that? Why have to worry about getting them into college? Why have to worry about them supporting them in college? Why not? Let's just get them a job. And one of the knocks that you hear from people is, well, college is such a fundamentally life-changing experience. And didn't you have an incredible experience in your four years? And didn't you learn how to be around other great people and how to think differently, and how to think more broadly? Certainly, I feel that way. I had an incredible college experience, but it is a very expensive way mm -hmm. to learn how to think more broadly and to be around people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the ROI is very clear on that. You know, the one thing about the ROI, I would love to know how we could measure it, but there are studies, studies after studies show that really in order to change your economic status, the best way to do that is through relationships and friends and partners, exactly. right? To essentially marry up or to friend up, if you will. There was a study in the Journal of Nature in 2022 and was quoted by the New York Times that said a key component to reducing poverty was friendships between the rich and poor. And it's in college where you get to have a completely different friend base. College is a place where you can do it in a way that you can't do it elsewhere. Yeah. And I know like personally for me, 
was NYU worth a master's in journalism? <laughs> the jury's still out. But I met people who I had classmates who were like the kids of like household names and all of the jobs that I got post grad school were through connections that I had from grad school. So I'd really be interested in what the ROI is of the network building of the network building. Yeah. I guess my question then is, can year up and maybe they do this already. We didn't cover this in the interview. It's a great follow up is, are they doing the same kind of thing in the workplace? Are they making sure that year up scholars who are placed in these companies have the opportunity to build networks? What are they doing inside? What sort of lunches are you doing? What kind of casual experiences do you have? I think that's really an important component. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on my conversation with Gerald Shertavian, the CEO of Europe. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast, Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back. Everything that Gerald's doing here is, you know, this is a start, but it's the, the movement is, is happening. So if you look at paid job listings on LinkedIn as an example, almost 20% of the paid job listings on LinkedIn this year in June don't require a four-year degree. Hmm. Last year at this time, 15% was the number. So within one year, a five percentage point change in hiring managers or in companies saying, actually, we don't need the diploma. And are these U.S.-based jobs? These are U.S.-based jobs. Which gets to the point, this is, it's happening fast. It's not universal yet. It is happening in pockets. There was a comment I saw on LinkedIn recently that I thought was really interesting. It points to this idea of, you know, what Gerald's doing is a start, but it is not evenly distributed. This is not something the entire world has got gotten behind yet. So this is a comment from member Pam McGregor, who's in South Africa. And she says, my experiences have been completely negative. And here, I think she's talking about this idea of being able to get hired or to be able to get ahead through experience versus getting degrees. She says, 30 years experience and work knowledge in the insurance industry, 15 as a national and legal claims manager. I have my regulatory examination and 90 credits and no one will hire me because I don't have my matric. So she's talking about her matriculation. So it's not, you know, this is not like a, a done deal at all. And I think companies have learned for a long time to look at the degree as like a, a stamp of approval. Yeah. You know, on that note, Dan, Gerald really had to convince leaders with that old school mentality of credentials first to take a chance on what he was pitching. You asked him in the interview how he does that. And here's what he said. I start by saying to a CEO, We've done 600 interviews with HR executives, with HR directors. We can now prove 
that when you require a four-year degree uh, for a role that doesn't need it, you pay 11 to 30% more in salary. It takes you longer to hire the individual. You get less diverse talent, and they turn over more quickly. So all those things are bad for your business. And what I'd like to do is show you a talent pool that you can invest in that can be relevant and valuable for your business. All we ask for is the chance to prove that to you. And, and what's really important, and this is an important point, is that once an executive really gets proximate to the challenge, right? Once an executive sees our young people, gets to know them, it's amazing how they change once their beliefs are impacted by something they really feel that they're proximate to. So I've got examples of Fortune 50 CEOs who have called me and said, Gerald, I'm standing next to your young adults. They're amazing. We want to hire them. And part of me thinks, what were you thinking about them before? And now that you've changed those beliefs, you can use your power to help your company see this talent pool and operationalize hiring them at scale. But I'm pretty clear that often changing your behavior first requires you to change your beliefs. And changing beliefs is about how you feel about something. It's not just what you think about it. So we consciously connect our young people to powerful actors on the stage whether it's political, executive, or otherwise. And it is amazing how many of those folks come back and say, man, this is the talent we need. I now believe something differently. I can now act differently. What I loved about this was not just what Gerald's been able to do, but this is a true case study in how to be persuasive. I mean, when he goes in with the data, you know, the very first thing, the data opens the door. Mm-hmm. And the executives are saying, well, the, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I want to do this. Yes, this is probably better for the world, but is this good for my company? I'm not sure. And so Gerald comes in with the numbers. And then he comes in with the heart. And he has the executives spend time with the scholars. And we open this podcast by talking about it. When you get a chance to sit at the table with kids and you can see how smart they are and how talented they are and this whole idea of, you know, talent being spread evenly but opportunity not – you really get to see that when you were sitting down with one of the year up kids. And so Gerald goes in with the data, then he goes in with the heart, and then he's got him. And I thought that was great. There is a lesson in there for all of us, no matter what it is that we're selling, which is if you can bring the stats and you can bring the human element into it, you're in a much better place. And if you can get it at the very top level, that is the ultimate win. But I would say it's not even coming in with the stats. It's coming in with the wallet. Yeah. This is how it's going to impact your wallet to do it this way. It's a great call. It's the ROI. Yep. This is like a proven ROI. It's yep. a no-brainer why this is good for your company. A, a member named Sarah Horn made a comment about this topic on, on LinkedIn. And she said, it's notoriously hard to get hiring managers to see past the lack of title in what's, let's face it, a title-driven workplace. Recruiters and HR have long fought this battle, but sometimes it's merely hubris on their part. They don't even want to consider a person without the title they themselves had. So my interpretation of that was that Sarah was saying that while recruiters and HR professionals want to see this change happen, they can't, there's only so far they can go. You know, They're being told what the job is and what is required to be in this job. Right. But if you can get the executives to buy in and say, yeah, I want to make a change, then suddenly things start happening much faster. Yeah. I think we forget how many barriers there are or how many gatekeepers there are to achieve a certain thing. Yeah. I mean, the only way change is going to happen is if uh, 
people who actually have the power to be able to do the hiring decide they want to do things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Getting in the door is just half the battle. You know, once you're in, once you've been hired, then you have to be successful in these roles. And Gerald talks about the importance of continuing to invest in education and growth for these scholars. So let's take a listen to how he describes it. What I would say for companies is, uh, how do you help people continue their educations as they get with you, right, as they're hired? So it's not that the young adults we serve don't want further education, but how does a company lean into that? And not just through tuition reimbursement, because if you don't have a lot of money, you can't get reimbursed, right? How about tuition advancement? How about a path that says, as you continue to learn, Here's how this assists your career. Let's align that learning with what we want strategically for our business and make the learning part of that employee engagement such that you are earning and learning at work. That's one thing you can do, especially for underrepresented communities. You can take a real good look at how is mentoring and sponsorship uh, taking place, knowing that for women and people of color, it's often been harder to get the mentors and the sponsors that are often instrumental in navigating one's career. So how intentionally do you do that? You assess that. And then I'd be talking to folks to say, look, do you feel like you belong here? Especially if you may be around a lot of folks who have advanced degrees, you may be underrepresented, whether it's by race or gender. Ask people authentically, how do you feel? Do you belong? Because the reality is that we have normalized certain behaviors in corporations that sadly make some people feel like they belong less. Hmm. And it's not because we're bad people, it's just because we've normalized that behavior over a long period of time. And as a CEO of any company, one has a responsibility to say, if I created the conditions that every person can be engaged, can be their best selves, they feel they're included, that they belong, they have access, they have opportunity, why would a CEO not want every human being they're paying a salary to to feel like that? Because it's in their best business interest to do so. I love that idea of making sure that everyone in the team and everyone at the company feels like they belong. And that question of, you know, asking folks like, hey, authentically, how do you feel? Do you feel like you belong? I would ask the majority what they are doing to make other people feel like they belong. So is your concern that if you ask, do you belong, it instantly makes people think, wait, Maybe do I, I not don't. belong? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's I a think, really good point. And I think the onus is not so much on the person coming in to make sure they feel like they belong, but I think the onus is on the group to make sure that it is inclusive of everyone. Yeah, well, I'm going to just go back to something that Gerald said, which is, I think, the bigger point or maybe the bigger takeaway, which is, he says, and as CEO of any company, one has responsibility to say, have I created the conditions that every person can be engaged, can be their best selves, that they feel included, they belong. So whatever way you have to do to get there yeah. is the solution. And you can't just look at, I've created this company, here's how we're growing, it is is everyone that's hired here, like, are they doing their best work? Are they in an environment that allows them to be able to do their best work? Yeah. So you got to find your own questions to be able to get there, but that should be the goal. Yep. And I think it may help to just kind of cap this with a comment from member Benjamin Toy, who says, 
Sometimes it doesn't matter what is on a person's resume. It matters much more how they work with the existing members of the team, how trainable they are, and that they feel a sense of belonging, value, and mutual commitment with the organization. Creating this cohesive culture is how you retain talent for a long time. Yeah, for sure. All right. What resonates with you about my conversation with Gerald Shertavian, CEO of Year Up? What advice would you give to an executive to make sure that they are leading teams so that people are bringing their best work and feel like this is an environment for them? If you have great experiences, pro and cons, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what you've experienced, I'd love to hear all of them. Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking or send us your voice. You can make a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at thisisworking at linkedin.com. Either way, you might hear your contribution on an upcoming episode. Please share this podcast episode with a friend and give us a review. It'll help people find us. And if you'd like to hear the full conversation between Dan and Gerald, check the show notes. We'll link to it there. This is Working as a LinkedIn Editorial Production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Stephen Valdivia, Asaf Gidron, Taisha Henry, and Lilia Briggs. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez, senior producer. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious.